Welcome to Navara Life. I'm Michael Walker, back from a refreshing holiday. Um, I'll be joined later by Aaron Bastani, and we have lots of very important stories for you tonight. We're talking about Labour, who have just announced, actually just announced, is maybe going a little bit too far. They, they've just teased what their policy might be when it comes for funding higher education. Um, there's a new development when it comes to Sebastian Payne and Jacob Rees-Mogg. And we've got quite a lot for you as well. We're going to start though with the story which is leading all of the newspapers and uh, news shows today, which is Philip Schofield. Um, if any of you are thinking, why are you talking about this daytime TV host? I think this is a pretty important issue, especially when it comes to the national conversation, actually what this means, that this is what we're all talking about. Philip Schofield has been leading the news for over a week now. That's because he's admitted to having a sexual relationship with a runner on ITV's This Morning. The member of staff was 20 at the time. Schofield had first met the person when he was 15, who he then helped to get work experience at ITV. Schofield, now 61, has since been sacked from This Morning and ITV and has stepped back from TV altogether. But he has given an interview to Amal Rajan at the BBC. That was today. And he was asked about the circumstances in which he first met the man in question. I was invited by a friend of mine to go to a school, something I've done thousands of times. Whether it was immediately or sometime after, he said, will you, um, will you follow him on Twitter because he's a, he's a fan? So I said, yeah, sure, no problem, which I did. And he probably came back saying thanks for the follow. And he was, what, 15 at the time? Yeah. I follow 11,300 people. And in all the time I've been on Twitter, there has never been any whiff of impropriety. So he followed you on Twitter, you followed him back. Did you start having a sort of email exchange or direct message exchange of any kind? Hardly, uh, hardly at all. It was just all the way through, just on and off. And then he asked if he could visit the studios, work experience type of thing. I said, well, you come down and have a look for sure, which he did. How old was he when he made that first? There's two stages there. How old was he when he first said to you, I'm interested in television? Was he 18 by that point? Nine, 19 then, I would think. He was 19 by then. And then when he said, could I come and have work experience, he would have been older than 19. Well, just a, a, a more or less about the same time because I'd organised it. And what did he ask you for? Did he, did he, so he asked you for work experience and you said, sure, come and have a look. Well, I did, I've done it all my life. My, I'm best friends with the people who got me into television. Um, and I've always believed in, in paying it forward. And so that was my, you know, it's just a, didn't think about it, you know, just did that. It's a strange idea that, you, you know, getting your friends or I suppose whatever relationship you want to call this into jobs you know, public service broadcasters is paying it forward. Some people might call it nepotism. But that's a somewhat separate issue to what we will be discussing because Schofield then went on to describe how the sexual relationship began with the young man. He was then aged 20. He'd been working at the show for a few months um, and, and we'd become mates. We were mates. And, you know, we around the studios, you hang out together, you know, you chat to each other, that sort of stuff. Um, and then in my dressing room one day, something happened. 
Um, which, you know, obviously I will regret forever for him and for me, mostly him. Um, but it, that happened maybe four or five times over the next few months. And I know it's unforgivable, um, but we weren't boyfriends. We weren't in a relationship. I was really in a mess with my own sexuality at the time. And it just happened. Now, it's that relationship which has ended Schofield's career. And Philip Schofield says he takes full responsibility for everything that's happened. However, um, he does have some criticisms of how the story has been handled in the media. If it was a heterosexual relationship, then, you know, it would have been a bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. If it's a gay relationship, then suddenly it raises eyebrows. It's wrong. It's wrong. People do find each other attractive in, in different age groups. I mean, it does happen, you know, but it's it's the mere fact that this is so gigantic, and I appreciate the workplace and you know I, and the history. I do I I get that, but it's the fact that it's you know it's so massive. Is predominantly homophobia. It's an interesting point. I, I'm not sure what I feel about it. You know, I I don't think for all of this, um, Philip Schofield has come across particularly well. Um, I don't have any particular sense that the guy is particularly in and of himself worth defending. I also think that, you know, the idea that you shouldn't get with young people who you're in an extreme position of power over, this is one of the most successful, most powerful people in television, right? Someone he met when he was 15, he says no laws were, were, were broken. We, we aren't able to suggest anything other than that. I don't think there's anything, there's no evidence that he did break the law. So it's just, was it an inappropriate relationship? Philip Schofield is saying that, yes, it was, he's apologizing for that. But the the demonization of him, he is saying is something else. He's saying it's homophobia. And he's saying that if this was a straight relationship, everyone would get over it. Now, I'm not entirely convinced of that. I think if you had a sort of 60-year-old or 50-year-old as he was at the time, in his mid-50s, who was getting with someone very, very much their junior, and a lot younger than them, that would be potentially a scandal. But I mean, he does, I was, I was looking this up, or I was messaging friends, what, what, what examples could you look at? So Celine Dion and went to marry the guy who talent scouted her as a 12-year-old. And they started dating when she was around 18 and he was 44. Um, and they got married and had kids. They were together until he died of throat cancer. So this was a happy consensual relationship by all account. Macron's wife is 25 years older than him. Um, they met when he was 15 and she was his married private school teacher with a daughter of the same age in the same class. Um, but I don't think there's been a scandal whereby Emmanuel Macron's um, now wife has been called a groomer. I suppose it, it somewhat depends on how the relationships end or continue in these situations. The reason these stories are so explosive when it comes to the news is the intersection of celebrity with a social issue or a social controversy that lots of people will have an opinion about. And the idea of age gaps in relationships and relationships when there's an extreme power imbalance. I mean, that's a very, very loaded issue with a very, very famous person. I mean, what's your, what's your take on all of this? What's my, what's my take on the thing that everybody's talking about? I mean, firstly, I, I think you're right, Michael. If this was a heterosexual relationship, 
I actually completely disagree with Schofield. I think it would be far worse if there was a man in their mid-50s who was perceived as potentially grooming um, a, a girl who was a minor in their early teens. I think all hell would break loose, frankly. I think he'd probably have to leave the country. Now, again, I'm not saying that's what's happened here, but I'm, I'm saying you, you would open yourself up to that, that perception. And sadly, when it comes to publicity and public relations, perception for many people is reality. Okay, that's not fair, but that, that's the world that he's been in for decades, show business. Uh, and obviously, you know, he, he should have known better. Uh, so I sort of dispute that. I think if it was a heterosexual man with a young woman, I think it would be actually far, far more, more aggressive than it presently is. Although I should say, Michael, one thing I'm, I'm really stunned with, really, is the complete absence of senior ITB management talking about this. Because, of course, they had a duty of care to this young man, which arguably they failed in. I don't know. Um, and there was a duty of care, obviously, to, to Schofield's colleagues. However, in regards to what's now happening to him, they also have a duty of care to him. To an extent, if this is a man who says he's at his wit's end, uh, he can't go on, then I think ITV need to do something to assist him in that situation because, you know, he's been making them money. He's been getting them eyeballs. He's helped them sell ads for decades. You know, he was on this program, I think since 2005, 2006. Ironically, he got his big break filling in for John Leslie after he was convicted of something himself. It says something interesting about the world of celebrity there, doesn't it? Um, so I think there's two sort of takeaways for me here. Firstly, I don't agree with the homophobia issue, though, of course, this whole idea about paedophilia and homophobia, you know, that, that's, that's a homophobic bigotry. The, the, the idea that those two things somehow converge inherently is, is bigotry that goes back decades. However, I don't think that's really the case here. And, and I'm really surprised, really, um, at the absence of senior ITV management. Again, these are conversations we've had with my friends because obviously lots of my friends are, are, are gay, um, as am I. But the uh, also the the approach to this on Twitter has been very interesting because it's very much divided. There are lots of people who say I was young, you know, around eighteen or whatever when I first got with someone who was much older, and I feel really terribly uncomfortable about it now. And you know, it might not necessarily have been anything that was sort of like criminal or really counters something abusive but it didn't feel right the power imbalance now i look back at it was clearly there and then you've got other people who met someone who was a lot older than them and had a completely fulfilling relationship so i mean it is it's something that really divides people i think depending on their personal experience obviously i mean he's said this was the wrong thing to do obviously this was the wrong thing to do obviously this was the wrong thing to do but the extent to which people are sort of relishing taking this guy down is potentially uncomfortable. I'm not sure how healthy it is for the national discourse at the moment that everyone is going so hard on this. Of course, what's strange about all of these stories is you never quite know what's going on. Is there more elements to this? You know, why has this come out now? What was going on at ITV? Because there's also a, you know, there's a version of this whereby ITV found out this was going on. If they did, I don't think they've really told us yet. They spoke to the 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 younger man and said this isn't you know are, are you fine with this spoke to philip scope and said you've got to stop this and then he got moved on to a different show which you know wouldn't necessarily be a complete scandal because if well you probably should should you this is a question for you aaron itv management find out this is going on should they fire philip scope on the spot even if the 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 younger man is saying it was all consensual i think legally they probably can't can they 
you're on very tenuous ground if you fire him on the spot. I mean, they might not renew his contract. I think that would probably be, be, be wise. Uh, but people have employment rights. Um, and if he's not broken the law, if he's not broken any stipulations in his contract, if he's not brought the company into, into disrepute, you know, it wasn't in the public realm yet, then I don't see how they could have, you fire him on the spot, maybe pay out his contract or not renew it, but certainly not that. I'm not sure how much progress we're going to make on this issue. I think it, it might be the case that more information comes out and then it's much easier to form a sort of much more concrete opinion on this story. Although I don't have that much faith in our media that it will be able to have a sensible conversation about all of this. Let's go on to Labour. Earlier this year, Keir Starmer abandoned his pledge to scrap tuition fees for UK undergraduates, and the party is now pitching its alternative. Well, sort of. Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson has written this piece for The Times. She's promising that graduates will pay less under Labour. And the proposals are a little bit less clear, though. So she writes this. Plenty of proposals have been put forward for how the government could make the system fairer and more progressive, including modelling showing that the government could reduce the monthly repayments for every single new graduate without adding a penny to government borrowing or general taxation. Labour will not be increasing government spending on this. Reworking the present system gives scope for a month-on-month tax cut for graduates, putting money back in people's pockets when they most need it. Um, She also hints at changes to funding for students while they are studying. So she says, every time I visit our world-class universities, I meet students taking on extra hours or new part-time jobs to cope with rising bills. The Tories' economic mismanagement is hurting students' studies and their chances. More hours spent earning means less time spent learning. That's affecting the grades students can achieve. And all too often, it's students from lower-income families, sometimes the first in their family to go to university who are struggling the most. So sort of the, the hint there is that there will be some sort of reform to bursaries or the reintroduction of bursaries, actually, because they don't exist at the moment. But clearly, this is obviously very vague. These are vague intimations towards pledges which might be made. And we know that when it comes to pledges, the Labour Party, we shouldn't have much confidence they mean anything. But um, Politico, I think the Times also in a separate article, said that the proposals Labour are looking at are from the consultancy firm London Economics, or at least that's one of the the models they are looking at. Now, in that report, London Economics compares its proposals to the changes recently announced by the government to student finance. This is from London Economics, but it's explaining the current proposals from the government. Now, the ALGA response, ALGA is the person who did a report for the government. The response is the government's response, as in, this is what we're going to do. So this is their plans. The plan of the government is to reduce the repayment threshold to £25,000, which will then be frozen and then held below wage growth. So a really low threshold after which you start paying back your student loan. And there'll be the removal of real interest rates. So the total amount you owe won't increase above inflation. Now, that sounds good on the surface. We'll find out in a moment it's not actually great. Um, And they will extend the repayment period by 10 years to 40 years. So my student loan, after 30 years after I leave university or took it out, I need to check, um, it will expire. Whatever is left will be wiped off. They're saying that will go up to 40 years for new graduates. The proposal that looks to me like it's probably the one Labour are talking about is the following. This consultancy say it will cost the same as the government's plans, but it will still have a 40-year repayment period, a threshold reduction and a freeze. But there will be some money to reintroduce maintenance grants 
And importantly, there'll be stepped loan repayment. So it won't just be the case that the moment you cross £25,000, you have to pay the full marginal rate on your student loan. It will be that you, you, know, you start on 2%, then when you're earning a bit more, it goes up to 4%, then 6%, then 8%. And the reason they're going to be able to afford to do this is because they want to keep the real interest rates. Real interest rates means interest rates above inflation. As I say, this is not Labour-announced policy. This is what Politico and the Times are saying. Labour seem like they're going to be looking at now. Now, from that, you might be thinking, why would Labour want to reverse the current government's commitment to keeping interest rates at or below inflation? That, to me, sounds like a really good idea on the face of it. But I am a little bit convinced, actually, after reading this report, that it probably is a regressive move. Um, and also, I should admit, I didn't realise how bad the government's current plans are. Remember what they are? It's to lower thresholds at which people start paying back loans, to increase the time before the obligation to pay expires, and freezing interest rates at the level of inflation. And that combination has a pretty bad outcome. Let's compare it to the current system. So the current system you can see here, if you're in the first or the second income deciles, you will probably never pay back any of your student loan because you never go above that threshold. If, say, you're in the, the fourth decile, you might pay back 18k. But then if you're in the eighth decile, so if you've got a pretty high income, you'll probably end up paying about 90 grand. And that's because that is what adds up from the, the loan itself, plus all the interest you've accrued. So the interest rate is quite high. And if you're on a high income, you're going to end up paying back a lot more than the original loan, which you took out. Under the proposed new system from the government, if Labour don't win the next election, and this is what goes through, is terrible. In the proposed changes, the second decile, instead of paying nothing, will now pay 17900 That's quite a lot of money if you're on a low income, over the course of your lifetime, of course. But this is the real kicker. Once you get up to the fourth decile, before or currently, for example, you'll be paying up to £18,600 over the, or the average. That will be the average you'll pay over your lifetime. The average will go up to £63,000. So now it's poorer people who will pay a lot more, a lot more on their students' fees than richer people. As you can see, once you get to the 7th, 8th and ninth deciles, they're paying a lot less than they were before. So the 8th decile, for example, at the moment they're expected to pay 90000 over the course of their lifetime. It's now it would be, and with this new system, down to 56000 So Labour are essentially saying, don't do these changes. And then also we'll make some changes to what rate you pay when the student loan repayments come back in. Aaron, this is all rather wonky. I doubt it's going to make for a particularly sort of sexy manifesto pledge. Um, how interested are you um, in these hints at policy changes from the Labour Education Secretary? Michael, I'm very interested. And I was very disappointed to hear you say that you didn't realise how bad the Tory proposals were. Because I wrote a piece for Navarra Media last oh. year called Student Loans Are Now Even More of a Scam. Uh, and here's the, here's the uh, stand first, Michael. Lower middle income earners will be hit hardest by government reforms. Lots of great images there, Michael. Uh, and I, I'd recommend our audience to go there. But you're right to say that the proposals were awful. Also, Michael, I really have to impress this onto our audience. I graduated, believe it or not. I might not look it. My, the moisturizer's working. Uh, but I graduated before 2012. Um, and the interest rate on my student loan is 1.5%. I have a very small loan because I didn't pay any fees. I paid £1,000 fees over three years because my parents' income didn't, didn't you know, hit, hit the thresholds. But as importantly, actually, in the long term, was the interest rate. So the pre-2012 the pre interest rate is 1.5%. After 2012, the government moved it to RPI um, if you're earning less than £28,000 or RPI plus 3% uh, if you're earning more than £28,000. 
And, and like you say, the, the idea here is that the interest rate will go lower, but the repayment rate is longer. Um, and you know, the people that benefit the most from these changes, as I write in the article, will be high-earning students, often men, who go into things like finance, uh, who can pay off those loans incredibly quickly. If you can't pay those loans off incredibly quickly, but you meet the threshold, as you've said, you're the ones being the hardest hit. Women hit harder than men uh, because, of course, women are out of the labor market longer, partly because they, ha they have children and don't have children. So it's iner inherently sexist as well, uh, this policy. And also, finally, Michael, there was a statistic that I talk about in the article. And this is, this is key. We don't really talk about this enough in the whole debate around tuition fees. The graduate dividend in this country for men is £153,000 a year at, over a, a lifetime. For women, it's £140,000. Now, in the United States, can you guess what the graduate dividend is for a man, Michael, over their entire lifetime? How much more do they earn than a non-graduate? Well, I don't want to guess in, in case you tell me that you wrote an article on this a year ago and I didn't read it and then I'm going to be humiliated again. It's all in the article. So for men, as I've said, just to reiterate, in the UK, for men, it's 153,000. For men, it's 140,000. In the United States, the graduate dividend for men is 426,000 pounds. It's almost three times higher than it is here. So people love to talk about student loans in the United States. Oh my God, they pay so much for college. Yeah, and they also earn three times more over the, the duration of their careers. It's worth it. Far more so than here. And if you think the US is an outlier, in Germany and France, again, the graduate dividend for men is around £250,000 over the duration of their careers. Here, it's just over £150,000. So we are getting a bum deal on higher education, on the loans, on the teaching quality often because of the way that neoliberal universities work, um, on the interest rate on the loans, and also in terms of what they add in the labor market. A really appalling uh, set of circumstances. And of course, anybody who's raised this over the last 10 years was labeled stupid, ignorant, you know, ridiculous leftists, don't know what they're talking about. Well, 10 years after the Tories implemented their own reforms, they're changing those reforms because the repayment rate was so low and actually they were losing money. So sometimes it's best to listen to the so-called outsiders and the people who don't know what they're talking about because it turns out in British politics, most of the time, they're right. To summarize sort of the government changes as I understand it, what it's going to mean is that a lot more people pay off their, their student loan in full because at the moment, lots of people, it expires before you pay it all back. So lots more people are going to be paying it back in full, but higher income earners are going to be paying it back sooner. So it ends up being much more aggressive than it currently is. And it already is a pretty shitty goddamn system. Um, another issue here you, you have to inevitably talk about when it comes to labor and tuition fees is the issue of flip-flopping. And we have some polling to suggest that Starmer's flip-flopping on this issue may have come at a cost. So this is a YouGov poll. 45% of voters now view Keir Starmer as untrustworthy, his worst ever rating on this metric. So only 27% of people think he's trustworthy, down six. And 45% of people think he's untrustworthy, which is up seven. He has a net rating of under a or minus 18. Sort of hint back to the previous story there. Kistama's not going to substantially change anything. Okay, if you think that, you know, you, you, good luck to you. You might as well be uh, getting out the Christmas tree on, 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 what's it, June the 2nd today. That's how, you know, that's how in the real world you are, right? So Kistama's not going to do anything substantial. I mean, you know, if we're very lucky, he might do several things like this. So he might, for instance, reduce the interest rate on student loans to the the status quo ante in, in, in the world before 2012. Um, so, like I said, the interest rate for me is very, is very low. I saw people, you know, over the last 
over the last year in particular, obviously, because the RPI inflation was very high. It was so high that actually the government had to say, we're going to sort of suspend the normal uh, set of affairs with regards to student repayments to put a cap on this. Because obviously RPI plus 3%, I mean, God knows what it would, what it would have been at the at the peak, say, you know, four or five months ago. Goodness, you know, you'd be looking at sort of 15% or something ridiculous. Uh, it's like a credit card debt all of a sudden for your student loan. Well, I'm paying 1.5%. A huge difference, Michael, over just three or four years, let alone the duration of your loan. So I think returning to that 1.5% is smart. The threshold for my own loan, like I say, I took that out, you know, 2003, four. Uh, the threshold for that loan is £20,000. The threshold is lower. So I think the strategy here is, is, is pretty plain to go back to that pre-2012 situation. However, Michael, you know, the, the Labour Party loves to say, we're going to give you something for nothing. We're going to do something that won't cost anybody anything. Uh, they're saying that for so many things, even though they're not promising very much. I, I think they're going to be quite buggered. You know, there was already, I think it was an IFS paper, Institute of Fiscal Studies, so that they're sort of 25 billion pounds short, more or less, of their spending commitments, because they seem to think that uh, taxing non-DOMs and closing loopholes and taxing private schools, VAT, is going to somehow, you know, pay for everything. It's not. Okay? So actually, when they say, well, we're costing everything and we're being so sensible, they're not doing it to the same extent that John McDonald was doing it. The point is the media give them a, an easy ride because the optics are different and the media operates in this country on vibes rather than substantial content. So I think it would be a good move. Uh, it'd be a difficult sell, but realistically, I think most people, Michael, out there in their early 40s, 30s, late 20s, who are really struggling to make ends meet. I think if that was a part of a broader package of, of reforms that Labour was offering at the next general election, that would make a real difference to people. And hey, it might even get them interested in voting Labour. Let's go to our next story. Gordon Brown's think tank has organised a rally to support his plans for greater devolution across the UK. But speaking at the event, which was in Edinburgh, Andy Burnham went a little bit further. We don't have a parliament at the UK level that gives equal voice to all the nations and regions. It's a, a parliament where some people and some places are more equal than others. That is how it happens. It's a place where too much power is concentrated in too few hands. But it does start, doesn't it, with reforming that, that parliament. And like Tracy, I absolutely endorse Gordon's plan for an elected Senate of the nations and regions. Just think of the House of Lords. Other people have mentioned it. The vast majority of them have their primary address within the M25. How can that represent everywhere equally? About 10% of them went to one private school in the southeast of England. You know which one I mean. <laughs> By my reckoning, about the same number of members of the Lords have their primary address in Scotland. I mean, think about that. How can that, play, how can that represent you or us or West Yorkshire uh, fairly? It, it can't, can it? And so we need, we need that change. But I would add something else, because I think we need to change the House of Commons as well. I think we need voting reform. I don't believe all people... I don't believe that all people in all places will be equally represented in Westminster until every vote matters. And it's only when every vote matters that every place matters within Parliament. I think when we've got politics in the UK where power is concentrated, as Tracy said, in too few places, in too 
small numbers of hands. That's when you get the wrong type of, of politics. It's too party-driven. You've always got the tensions of party in that system because everything's done through the lens of the party and what, what it wants. And actually, most people don't live their lives like that. When you devolve power out and down into different places, you create the conditions for a place-first approach rather than a party-first approach. And if you go with a place-first approach, that's a more unifying way to, to work and make things happen. It's a better way of working. So Andy Burnham's proposals to reform the electoral system to the House of Commons were apparently supported by Welsh First Minister Mark Drakefield, who also appeared at the event, um, Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa and West Yorkshire Mayor Tracy Brabin were also there. They were there to back the Gordon Brown devolution proposals, not proportional representation, which um, Andy Burnham seems to be in favour of. Aaron Bastani, Gordon Brown wants more devolution. Um, this was all part of a sort of an, an event to talk about, let's have more devolution for Scotland, not an independent Scotland, which I think is going to be Labour's position at the next general election. And also to talk about more power to regional mayors and the like. Um, obviously quite separate from Andy Burnham's proposals for PR, which we know the Labour Party, at least the top of it, has no interest in it. Keir Starmer has basically said, we're not going to do that, even though, again, one of his pledges was to to reform the electoral system so that everyone's votes matter. Um, what do you make of it? Gordon Brown's a fantasist. <laughs> That's what I make of it. Gordon Brown's a fantasist. The idea that Keir Starmer's going to give power away is the most stupid thing I've heard today. And believe me, <laughs> I, I've been on Twitter for the last several hours. No. That's a fantasy. Tracy Brabin, uh, Andy Burnham would not be these mayors. They would not have gone to the long lists or the short lists if Keir Starmer was the, was, the, was, the, was the party leader and had the kind of hold he now has over the party. We've had today breaking news of Jamie Driscoll in the Northeast. He is the incumbent Labour mayor for the region. He's been blocked from getting on the long list. So there's no point creating loads of new mayor roles if the Labour Party determines that the only people that can actually fulfill those roles are the friends and the bag carriers and the, and the fluffers of the establishment party at Westminster, if they're personally anointed by Keir. That is not giving power away. That is not local democracy. That is not, as the Europeans like to say, subsidiarity. That is not local democracy, okay? That is a license, that is a cover, that is a masquerade of localism when actually what you're doing is you're centralize, ever, centralizing ever more power at Westminster. Keir Starmer heard the phrase, take back control, and he thinks it means him, Peter Mandelson, and Morgan McSweeney in their multi-million pound London homes and in their members clubs in West London. That's what they heard. When millions turned out to vote for Scottish independence or uh, for the Brexit referendum or for Corbyn or for Boris Johnson even in 2019, each time people wanted a change. You might not agree with what they wanted, but they wanted change. Keir Starmer heard they want more of the same. They want more power at Westminster. So I think it's, 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 it's pure Gordon Brown. Good intentions, decent man, completely detached from reality. Not going to happen. And I think Labour members need to be realistic about this as well. We'll get Keir Starmer in and then we'll push him to the left and he'll adopt PR and we'll have a localist. No, what are you talking about? We'll give this guy all the power and then we'll change things. Yeah, okay. That's the complete opposite of what you should be trying to do, by the way. So, completely unserious uh, 
proposal. Very good to see Andy Burnham talk about proportional representation. Of course, the Labour government under Keir Starmer is not going to bring that in. Look, this man, Michael, has been driven by a single thing throughout his political career, a short political career, it should be said, since 2015. Personal career advancement. Look at Brexit. He campaigns on Remain before 2016. Immediately after the result, he accepts Brexit. Owen Smith runs for leader. He wants second referendum. He says, we have to have a second referendum. Labour do very well in 2017 because they accept Brexit. He now accepts Brexit. He told Owen Jones on YouTube. 2018, 2019, he says, nope, now we're the party of Remain. And now after getting absolutely destroyed in the 2019 general election, in large part because of their position on Brexit, not entirely, but in large part, he's now saying, we can't even entertain the idea of a customs union. Several years ago, he would have called that the hardest Brexit possible. His supporters would have called it enabling fascism. All these little Starmeristas on Twitter. Several years ago, if you said that, you'd be a fascist. But now, apparently, it's sensible politics. So the idea that this, this gentleman and this faction and this coterie of, of bag carriers in London will give power away to the British people is the most ludicrous thing I've heard in a while. One of the big pieces of evidence we've got that Keir Starmer doesn't want to give power away um, is how he has dealt with selections. You know, pretty outrageous. Jamie Driscoll, a current Metro mayor, just been excluded from the long list. I mean, we don't know the details, but if we're looking at how this fits into a pattern, it's basically anyone who is left-wing um, will be excluded by any means necessary, and the media basically won't talk about it because it's their side doing it. So I, I totally agree. His attitude to the party has been atrocious, and to party democracy has been atrocious. One could say, though, you know, in that he is following the lead of the Blairites, and one thing the Blairites did do was devolution you know they they did follow through on 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 devolution giving a lot more power um to scotland setting up the scottish parliament and the welsh parliament which probably has been a net positive when it comes to politics in this country is it not possible that that keir starmer will do the same he's sort of saying i need this iron grip on the labor party so that we can enter power but once i'm in power i'm more than willing to no. say that uh, there should be different regional agents of power in, in this country. You don't, you don't think he will do some devolution constitutionally, even though when it comes to inside the Labour Party, he's very far from a Democrat? No. And also, by the way, I think Blair regressed a lot of that agenda. I, th I think he didn't even know what he was doing half the time. Look at Freedom of Information. He's gone on record. He said in his uh, autobiography, The Journey, that it was his biggest regret was implementing information of uh, freedom of information. He said, if I'd known what, you know, if people would actually were going to make freedom of information requests, I never would have done it. You know, he just thought, this is stuff that I'm going to basically accept the market. I'm going to accept the Thatcherite political economy. And okay, we'll bolt on some stuff that these liberals are asking for, like a Scottish parliament, whatever. Makes it sound kind of like Europe, a European country, federalism, great. The Americans do it, federalism, great, let's do it. That's, that's, that's Blair, right? And initially, they weren't alternative centers of power. They were very much party bag carriers. And of course, when that didn't happen with the, the emergence of Ken Livingston running for London mayor, um, well, Labour's candidate was Frank Dobson. So, um, and Livingston had to win before Labour let, let him back in. So that showed you that Blair also wasn't particularly interested in democratic practice. I think Blair did lots of things which were short-sighted. You know, Blair, um, Blair instituted um, PR for European elections, which of course provided a launch pad for UKIP. Probably makes Brexit happen. That single decision probably makes Brexit happen. Because, of course, with proportional representation, UKIP all of a sudden can become this party, which by 2009, 2014, are a national party. And, of course, you get subsequent media coverage as a result, like Farage did, going on question time every week, because you are, you are a national party. UKIP won a national election in 2014. 
European elections. So um, no, I, 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 I think that's I think it's very wishful thinking, Michael. And it also adds Starmer is the right of Blair. Starmer is to the right of Blair. I don't understand what people need to to, to sort of you know see or comprehend to grasp this point. He is to the right of Blair. Look at his shadow cabinet. Look at his shadow cabinet. Robin Cook was in Blair's shadow cabinet. Robin Cook was his shadow foreign secretary and also Leeds foreign secretary. Robin Cook would not be in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet. He wouldn't be in it. Prescott was his um, deputy prime minister. Let's see what role Rayner has in any Labour government under Keir Starmer, Michael. Uh, so I think you're wrong on a few things there, or that, that hypothesis is wrong. Firstly, Blair wasn't really interested in democratising things. I think he probably regretted a great deal of it. And then secondly, Starmer's the right of Blair. And, and I know people don't like to hear this because he, you know, he, he propelled himself to the forefront of popular consciousness as this championing liberal QC, you know. The uh, character in Bridget Jones is based on Keir Starmer. Have you ever heard anything more stupid and pathetic and groveling in your life? Really? This, that, that was passing for political comment in this country. I think Zoe Williams wrote it in The Guardian. Oh, my God's sake. What happened to this country? No wonder we're buggered. Anyway. Uh, I, I, I think it's very wishful thinking, Michael, and I think that the lesson from Keir Starmer with wishful thinking is it comes back and bites you on the buttocks. I mean, Keir Starmer's history is a bit more left-wing than Tony Blair's history before he became Labour leader, right? So if, if Keir Starmer is just thinking he has to do the most Machiavellian thing to do, he, he can before he gets into power, then if, if you're looking at what does this guy actually want, you know, he did write letters against the Iraq war, he did represent some protesters, you know, there is clearly an element of left-wingness in him, even if he's successfully buried it. So I'm not, I'm not sure if I buy that as a person, Keir Starmer is, is to the right of Tony Blair. But you, do, you think he's, do you think he is as a person to the right of Tony Blair or is just campaigning to the right of Tony Blair because he's so, so insecure about being seen as left-wing? He's to the right of Tony Blair. He's the, Tony Blair in 1983, he became an MP in 1983, he was for nuclear disarmament as a Labour MP. Tony Blair's conversion to becoming what he became is very different to Starmer. Starmer entered politics in 2015 as a man with a very successful career in, the, in, in law who, who knew what he wanted, knew who he was. So it's very different. Blair starts out in politics, entering the Labour Party, somebody not on the soft left, but not, not what he became. He was very much a child of, 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 of how the Thatcherite revolution unfolded. I think to his bones, yeah, Keir Starmer just believes in power, Michael. He just believes in power. And he looks at Joe Biden, okay, well, we have to talk about progressive and, you know, public. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. Because it's the zeitgeist. He sort of has to, he thinks he has to appeal to it a little bit. You, Michael, it's hard for us to comprehend. As Karl Marx says, conditions determine consciousness. If you're a sir, if you are a director of public prosecutions and the state literally spent £150,000 or whatever it was over a couple of years for a private car to drive you four miles from home to work, okay, you, you change, your brain changes, your views change. It's, you have to be an incredibly extraordinary person to not change. Just be some like Yanis Varoufakis. Keir Starmer is not that campaigning libel lawyer. It's ridiculous. And we all know this, right? With, with, with conditions and consciousness. Fly business class on a flight once. Do it once, okay? Then the following time you go on economy and you go, oh, I don't, I don't quite like this you've seen the other side. That's Keir Starmer's life for the last 30 years. So yes, I think he's to the right of, of, of Tony Blair. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I think you could be in a situation where if there were countervailing left-wing forces in his party, he believes in rail policy, can, he might have to integrate them. But the Labour Party doesn't operate like that. There aren't primaries. We don't have PR. So he can completely remake his party from the top down. 
Alongside that, he's allied with people who I think are just as right-wing as him, Peter Mandelson, Morgan McSweeney, and the party's increasingly reliant on, on millionaire donors. So I, I just don't see in all of this story how all of a sudden we're going to see a democratization of the British state. I mean, it, 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 it sounds to me almost like you'd have to be on drugs to believe that, frankly. It's, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. How much, how much has to happen? How much? Let's go on to our next story. The RMT are still in their dispute over pay and conditions with the government and the train companies. They're back on strike and Mick Lynch is back on the media. When was the last time you spoke to government about trying to get this strike resolved? I think we spoke to government uh, back in January. It's been many months. The government is trying to remain aloof, but of course in the contracts they have with the train operating companies... They are directly responsible, and they're responsible for this deadlock and responsible for the fact that there's not a, a settlement. They've cost the country nearly £5 billion in the course of this dispute. They've given the train operating companies £900 million in subsidies, and they've allowed them to pay £160 million of dividends over the last two years. So they're entirely responsible, but they're like Pontius Pilate, they just want to wash their hands of it. I mean, they will, of course, say that you and your, your members have cost the country by, by going out on strike. You say there's an impasse and the government are the ones being the roadblock. What is it exactly that the government aren't allowing the rail delivery group to do? Well, the government has, has contracts with all these companies that say that the Secretary of State, Mark Harper, is directly responsible for industrial relations, their negotiating stance and the conduct of the dispute. So they are demanding that our members put up with below inflation pay rises. We haven't had a pay rise for four years now, and they've offered 5%, when inflation over that period has probably been 25. They want to cut thousands of jobs out of the system. They want to shut every booking office in Britain. They want to get rid of catering. They want to get rid of engineering jobs. Uh, so there are a whole host of changes that they want to bring in, which will be detrimental to the public and the service on the railway and the railway's future. And they're directly responsible for that. But, of course, they've got, got a dogmatic approach to workers' wages. They're making working people poorer all over the country. And everywhere outside of Mark Harper's remit, we've got settlements. We've got settlements in Scotland. We've got settlements in Wales. We've got, even got settlements with the private sector rail operators and the bus companies and all, everybody else we deal with, except where the Tory government controls the industry. We've got no settlement and we've got strikes. As well as speaking to Sky, Mick Lynch went on Talk TV. Aren't you at risk of putting your members out of a job and out of work? Because frankly, you don't need people to drive trains and to guard them in the, in the way that you used to. You don't need staff in, in the way that we used to have them before because people can do it online, they can buy their tickets, they, they, they don't need as many staff. You could be putting your members at risk, aren't you? No, I don't think we are putting our members at risk. We're, we have pushed back on all the changes they want to make. It's no good having an app if you've got a drunken, unsocial behaviour uh, incident on a train station at night when women are seeking to go home from shift work, when nurses and care workers are looking for assistance on a platform. An app is no good for you if you're in a wheelchair and need to board a train with a, a, a big gap at the interface. An app is no good to you when you get disrupted train services, when you get animals on the line or trespassers or whatever. None of that works. There isn't a train in this country, and there won't be for many decades, that can be driven without a train driver. That people want a guard on the train. They want their station staffed. We saw in the 80s and 90s, when the, the trains were de-staffed, that they became hostile environments, muggers paradise, if you like. We want 
a friendly, secure, affordable railway that's in the hands of the people, that run, is run in the interest of the people and not for profiteers. So Mick Lynch making the argument, we talk about it a lot on this show, that you know, a really good service, a really good rail service will employ quite a lot of people. A real top-class station, which is a nice place to catch a train, you know, especially if you are a person who might feel vulnerable in some way, has some staff there, right? There'll be some staff on the train, there'll be some staff on the platform. This idea that, oh, because of technology, we can just all do it all by app, seems a bit odd to me. It might be the case that people are doing different things, like when it came to ticket offices. Probably we do need less people to sell us tickets, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should sack the people. It means that maybe we could put those people to different jobs on railway stations because it's nice to have people around, right? People who you can ask help from. The idea that this modern, futuristic society is, is, is one where the only person you can talk to is, you know, through a chatbot on an app, I don't quite buy. This particular strike, so the strike this weekend, has been especially controversial because it clashes with the FA Cup final, which is between Man City and Man U. Lots of traffic is expected, as that's a lot of people going from Manchester to London in a single day. Um, fans have had to find alternative routes. I think Man United fans have been told to take some roads and Man City fans have been told to take others. Aaron, the RMT have had a very sort of populist strategy so far is taking on football fans on the FA Cup weekend a mistake? No, I don't think so. I mean, most people going to watch a football match aren't going down. Well, many people aren't going down on, on the morning. They will stay overnight. You know, they make a weekend of it, um, have a few drinks. I'm sure if you if you go out in London tonight, you probably meet a lot of Manx. So uh, that's not entirely right. Obviously, many people drive down. Coaches is the classic for away fans, of course. So, you know, it's, it's not like it's some game change of people that want to go and watch the FA Cup. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't buy that. There's always an event. You know, it was apparently Eurovision last time. Why does the RMT hate Eurovision? Now it's the FA Cup. Um, no, it's, it's silly. And I, look, I follow lots of football fans on, on Twitter, on social media. They're the first to say that this is just a ridiculous, phony war. Um, being created between the labor movement and football fans. Football fans care deeply about things like fan ownership, um, about you know uh, foreign oligarchs or millionaires or billionaires coming into British football and not screwing it up. Okay, the Saudis are one thing; they're actually injecting money into Newcastle or other Gulf Arabs like Man City. But people like Milan Mandaric in Portsmouth or like um, the Glazers at Manchester United sucking money out of English football, you know, there is a real hard political edge to that. We saw that, of course, with the proposals for the Super League. Well, that was two years ago now, Michael, uh, best part of two years ago. And the response that that created immediately, you know, Chelsea fans, hardly known for being uh, political radicals who are prone to direct action, were, were blocking the team's coach coming into Stamford Bridge. Uh, and so the, the, the proposals were very quickly deflated and rejected. So I think, you know, football fans have a bit more sa savviness to them than is being um, sort of projected here by the Tories and bits of, bits of the media. Of course, they just think that working class people like their football can't hold two ideas in their head at the same time. You know, somebody can be irritated by the inconvenience of something, but also support the strikes. And I'm, I suspect that's a, a decent chunk, if not most, of the people affected by this. To close out this segment, we thought you'd just show you this, um, the BBC have just released a documentary series on the current strike wave. And it, of course, as you can imagine, features quite a lot of Mick Lynch. This is footage from November last year. There's about, I think, three or four cameras 
There's a few reporters out there. Okay. Channel 4's going live, I believe. Right, where's what I've got to say? Let's see how it goes. Talks between the train companies and the RMT continue to stall. We're trapped in this cycle which the government hold the key to. Nobody else can provide a solution. What is the latest situation? We're going to escalate the, um, the action so that we show the companies and the government that we're serious um, and we have to keep it moving forward. OK, all right, good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to give you an announcement about our action. We're announcing four weeks of industrial action on the 13th and 14th and 16th and 17th of December, and then again on the January the 3rd and 4th and the 6th and 7th. Despite every effort made by our negotiators, it is clear now that the government is directly interfering in our attempts to reach a settlement. Uh, could of how close these strikes are to Christmas, you've been nicknamed Mick Grinch. Is that a nickname you're proud of? Well, I expect that from, from yourself. That's the sort of quality uh, journalism I've come to expect from your particular dark corner of Fleet Street. Two five-day strikes at the most sensitive time of the year. How are you not well, a Grinch? Every day is, is sensitive. There's no good time to have a strike. We have deliberately left the Christmas period. Oh, come period. on, you've done it deliberately well, in the run-up to I can answer Christmas the question, and afterwards. You asked me a question yeah. about Christmas. I've never seen a time where the press say, let's listen to what the unions say. They just regurgitate what they hear from the government. The government's got vast press resources. Government's blaming you. What would you say in response? I mean, how long until next year can we expect this kind of misery to grind on? It does feel that you've got a lot of people against you sometimes, and the power of the state in this case as well. It's all a bit surreal, all this, isn't it? <laughs> Give them a wave. <laughs> the rug's been pulled out from underneath them. The government must put themselves in a place where they create the right environment and show goodwill and be facilitators rather than an obstacle to the settlement. Just to say, we asked the Rail Delivery Group, we asked Network Rail, we asked the government to join us tonight. No one was available. If these... Well, I wonder why. Let's go to our final story. It's an entertaining one. Yesterday, my colleague Aaron introduced you to the story of Sebastian Payne. He's the former Financial Times Whitehall editor who is now attempting to become a Tory MP. Well, now we have even more details on this story. This was an update from Potbitch. A few years ago, Payne caused a lot of chatter among lobby journalists when the Financial Times ran a series of big political interviews and commissioned Seb to interview Jacob Rees-Mogg. The photographer, who was assigned to grab a couple of pictures, was surprised when they turned up to the Rees-Mogg household to find Seb already there wearing a dressing gown. It turned out he'd decided to make a weekend out of the whole thing and enjoy a little sleepover. This is phenomenal, right? So if this is true from Potbitch, obviously we don't know anything more than what Popwitch have, have, have emailed out, but it's in the public domain. They are suggesting um, that Sebastian Payne, when he was Whitehall editor at the Financial Times, so not a commentator, you know, if, you, if you're an opinion journalist or a comment journalist, I think openly having relationships with, close relationships with politicians is, is fine because you're often going to be very open about those relationships, right? So when Corbyn was leader, we would often be openly quite close with certain people in, in the Labour Party. We, we backed um, that part of the party, but you know, I'm a broadcaster, but broadcaster who has, you know, my my political opinions on my sleeve. 
Whitehall editors, reporters aren't supposed to do that. But if this is true, when he went to interview Jacob Rees-Mogg, he stayed the night. Um, and when the cameraman arrived, he was wearing a dressing gown. Um, Aaron, what do you make of this development in this story? Yeah, Michael, it's a really important sort of distinction you're making there. You know, I was I was obviously um, very, you know, positive with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and I was very uh, upbeat and I was supporting the guy. But I was also doing memes of Spider-Man whenever a positive poll came out with, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's face on Spider-Man. So, you know, I wasn't really presenting myself necessarily as somebody who's really indifferent and ambivalent as to who wins uh, the next general election, which, of course, is what Seb Payne was meant to be doing as Whitehall correspondent for one of the most prestigious papers in the country. Michael, I want to quickly read to you. This is from the FT uh, Editorial Code of Practice. Point five, conflicts of interest. FT journalists may not participate in outside ventures that involve commercial or quasi-commercial relationships with entities and or individuals about which the journalists report or edit as part of their work. So that means really the Conservative Party. I think that has Seb Payne on the hook. But here's the killer given the story in, re in regard to uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, nor must they engage in any such relationship with an organization that completely uh, competes directly or indirectly with the FT. The FT must avoid any impression that our coverage can be influenced by favors, including gifts, hospitality, and entertainment. Sebastian Payne, while interviewing Jacob Rees-Mogg, allegedly stayed overnight and had a little dressing gown given to him. I think that counts as a gift, hospitality, favor, or entertainment. So Seb Payne, who was the Whitehall correspondent for the Financial Times, this was the guy that literally come, came up with the idea of the Red Wall, was taking favors in kind, according to Popbitch, uh, from Jacob Rees-Mogg. And that's the one we know about, by the way. I find this utterly extraordinary because, you know, we have lots of joke papers in this country, let's be honest, The Express, often The Mail, The Sun, of course. The Financial Times is meant to be a serious newspaper and it's meant to provide its readers with serious information because the investor class needs accuracy. The misinformation and the nonsense, that's for the little people. And yet, the, 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 the base nature of the tabloids, the complete absence of any commitment to professional integrity and standards is absolutely demonstrated here by uh, Sebastian Payne while working with Financial Times. I think it says so much about our media. People love to bash, including me, The Sun, GB News, Talk TV, The Express, The Mail. This is the most serious publication in the country and their correspondent on Whitehall was no better. I probably should say that the allegation from Popbitch doesn't say whether or not the dressing gown was taken to Jacob Rees-Mogg's house by Seb Payne or whether he received it there. <laughs> Either way, uh, staying the night somewhere does count as a gift or a favour in most people's books. Aaron Bastani, thank you so much for joining me this evening. It's a pleasure to be back. It was my pleasure, Michael. You know, I love being the co-host. Host is such a hard job, Michael. Uh, it's such a hard job. And I, I think, you know, people are saying, oh, we love Aaron, you know, in the comments. Michael is the GOAT, G-O-80. So I hope you have a wonderful weekend, Michael, after having your lovely holiday in Italy. I appreciate that. You're the GOAT. Gino in the background is the GOAT. Um, very jealous. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday at 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.